Live from Columbus, it's the Zone of Truth. This week on the show, Griff and I review the Kona Spiked Island Seltzer Variety Pack, check about the Pallid Princess Ergothoa and her minions, and of course, answer some listener questions. I'm your host, Steve, in the studio with your GM and my co-host, Griffin. Roll a will save. You're in the Zone of Truth. And we're live with a full-ass agenda. So, Griff, what have you been up to lately? I started watching the new Netflix series, Delicious in Dungeon. Ooh, it's, tell me about it. Uh, it's The premise is it's a group of adventurers that go down in this dungeon, and the dungeon is kind of like a thing that you like send adventurers into. So there's like a whole dungeon economy or whatever at the start of this anime. Mm-hmm. And... The first scene is like them getting wiped by a red dragon and the main character's sister gets eaten by the red dragon. Okay. And many of them have died multiple times. So they know like, okay, if we can get down to her in time and kill this dragon and get her body, it'll be fine. We can bring her back. Sure. But because they failed, they have like no money for food. They're poor. They're having this whole conversation about like, do we sell our gear and get worse gear so that we have money for food and we can go back down into the dungeon? And secretly the main character has been like taking notes and everything on like all the creatures in the dungeon and he's like well the field guide says you can actually eat monsters from the dungeon okay and it's like this super unpalatable option like nobody does (laughs) (laughs) and he's like i've heard you could do this so they re-enter the dungeon they're in like early levels of the dungeon and they're all pretty powerful so they're just like easily killing like trash mobs and attempting to cook them And they meet this dwarf friend that you think he's got this like massive shield on his back. It's just this giant walk. Oh my God. And he's like, are you a monster eating enthusiast as well? Can I join your party? I'd love to, I'd love to venture forward. And like his whole goal in life is to get deeper into the dungeon to eat more dangerous monsters. Let's go ahead and promo the name of this show one more time because... <laughs> Delicious in Dungeon. Delicious in Dungeon. It <laughs> sounds delightful. And it's so funny because they're like, the dwarf knows how to prepare a lot of these things. So they're initially like trying to like boil a scorpion, like the giant scorpion. Because mm-hmm. the guy reads that like, you can eat it. And the dwarf's like, no, no, no. You have to like cut off the tail and claws and whatever, because the tail's going to make you sick. It won't kill you, but it's like, it still has the poison. So he's like, this is how you do it. He's like showing them how to fillet it. And like, he's like, do any of you have a slime? Like you could take a slime. If you dry it out for a couple of days, you can cook it. And it like works for like thickening soups and making noodles and shit. It's just like all these ridiculous things that he's making out of monster parts. Does the animated food look good? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's very Food Wars style, like good looking food. That's tough. Yeah, I'm going to watch that under the influence to be a little too hungry. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's released in episodes, so I think there's only like three episodes out right now. Oh, so this is like new. Yeah, it's brand, brand new. new. Okay. But it's pretty fun. Nice. That sounds like a blast, dude. And, you know, they like they find a body in like the first episode. They're like, oh, should we like report, like go back up and report this? Or just like if we leave it on a main path, will like the dungeon cleaning crew like come pick this guy up? It's like that kind of thing. Like there's apparently some bureaucracy around the dungeon. So it's pretty fun. 
That's really the main thing, though. Yeah. Dude, that sounds like a blast. I'm definitely going to have to check this out. On my end, I've been listening to some new music. So one of my favorite bands, Aaron Weston, The Roaring Twenties, just released a new song. It's the title track off of an upcoming record that they're going to be dropping in April called In Lieu of Flowers. And if you haven't listened to Aaron Weston, The Roaring Twenties before, they are a side project of Dan Campbell, the lead singer of The Wonder Years. And it's this like really interesting pop punk folk emo type vibe to it. Very melancholy, but with like a hair of positivity in there. The new song is an absolute blast. It's so them. If you like anything in that sort of a genre or adjacent to it, I would very highly suggest checking out. It's really good. I've also been a huge proponent of all the new Bring Me the Horizon stuff. They just released a new song called Kool-Aid, which is like you got some of the old like deathcore screams that they used to do in like the suicide uh, squad. No, that's not that's not right. Uh, What the fuck was that album called? Whatever. Doesn't matter. It's the one with the girl holding guts in her hands on the front of it. But it's like screams that are reminiscent of that. But like themes from mantra and it's really good. So I would I would check that out, too, if you're into that type of music. And the big anime thing in my life, because you talked about yours, Griff, I got done with season two of Vinland Saga. And oh, my God, I think some of the tail end of the season episodes was some of the most like introspective poignant TV I've ever seen. I think it was executed excellently. So I've mentioned before that I watched season one, of course, and it is this like balls to the wall Viking revenge story, tons of violence, super high intensity. And then if you know anything about Vinland Saga at all, you'll know or probably have heard that there's a big tonal shift for season two where they really, really slow things down and the tone of the show changes a lot. But it feels like a show that has something to say. Like a lot of movies or shows that I watch, it's like, oh, that was a fun experience. We're done with that now. But this one, I walked away from it going, okay, they had a very clear message and it came across and I feel differently coming out of this. So it was really good. Definitely gave me the spur of inspiration that I was looking for for the upcoming Michigan Nordic Firefest that we're talking about going to again this year. And I'm working on my costume for that a little bit more. So I was that like shaman, pagan looking dude, all black with horns on my head and everything. And I'm going to make be making a little bit of enhancements to that. So I'm excited for how that's going to be coming along. I'm going to get crafty, guys. Nice. Getting crafty in the new year. But yeah, that's a real fast overview of all of the stuff that's been going on in my life lately. I mean, it's been a while since we've gotten together and recorded one of these episodes. So there's a whole bunch of other shit that's been going on. But those were some of the main things that I wanted to chat about. What I also want to chat about, we got some seltzers to taste, don't we, Griff? Yeah, new pack, baby. Now, where did this come from? Because you brought this one today. Yeah, this one was from my Christmas break back in PA. So we got it at Waywood. I believe it's the same brand that does the Kona Big Island, which is a popular macro, I guess, for the kids these days, although I've never had it. Same. Uh, (laughs) From Hawaii. They're making a seltzer. I imagine this is going to be similar in vain to, you know, like the Rainier seltzers and the 
Bud Light seltzers probably at a smaller scale. Yeah, we'll certainly see. We're going to try and move through these at a decent clip because I know we have a lot of Ergothoa stuff to talk about in a little bit. But also, courtesy of Chris, we got a little bonus round of seltzer tasting to do after these four. So first of all, some website copy from Kona. Need a Hawaiian vacation? Every fizzy sip of our crisp hard seltzers is packed with tropical taste that will transport your senses. No luggage needed. Sparkling bubbles, enticing aromas, and juicy flavors bring the islands right to you. What's even more refreshing? Kona spiked island seltzers have zero sugar and are naturally gluten-free. One life, right? So these are 5% ABV, 100 calories a pop, and zero sugar. We have four flavors. Passion fruit, orange guava, strawberry guava, starfruit lime, and tropical punch. Now you might be asking yourself, how are we going to rate these seltzers? Well, of course, it's going to be the Kona scale. So a one out of five is a Kona. That is the word for angle or corner in Korean. A two out of five, well, that's going to be a Kona. That is a bicycle brand where you can spend smart and ride hard. Three out of five, that's going to be a Kona. That's a 2017 survival game. A four out of five, well, that's gonna be a Kona. That's a mighty SUV that does it all by Hyundai. And a five out of five, that's a Kona, an asteroid discovered in 2009. You know, we get a, get a lot of feedback that sometimes the scale of these is a little confusing or doesn't really make sense. I think this one couldn't be clearer. <laughs> <laughs> so how about we get started with passion fruit orange guava? We got sure. a little, uh, little copy there. Yeah, right, passion fruit orange guava, the perfect balance of sweet and exotic island flavor brought to life in a zero sugar, juicy hard seltzer. On the can, it says only three ingredients. And it also says mahalo for drinking responsibly. <laughs> That I can get behind. So Wow, I guess there are only three ingredients on there, huh? Huh. I don't think it's gross. It's just kind of ambiguously tropically sweet. Yeah, it's not even that sweet. I've definitely had sweeter. Right, but there's not like a definitive flavor. I guess I can pick out a little orange because that's maybe the flavor of the three that I'm the most I think familiar I can, with. I think I can taste the passion fruit. You think so? It. It's just not very strong. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm there with you. I'm pretty okay with it. You know, it's at least light enough and doesn't have a weird aftertaste that I could, I could probably drink multiple of these. I'm going to give it a Kona. I think I'm also going to lean Kona on this, although I was between that and Kona, but it is sweet, but not overly so. I, I guess that ambiguously sweet is, is like the definition that I'm going to be circling around for that, but I could drink a fair amount of these and probably not get sick of it, even though if it's not super defined in my eyes. And that's fulfilling the promise of the premise, which to me is a Kona. Sounds good. All right. Strawberry guava is up next. Flavors of fresh strawberries and guava meld perfectly to create a quenching and exotic hard seltzer. It's your bubbly ticket to a Hawaiian vacation. Hmm. I'm definitely getting the strawberry. Yeah. About the guava. But the strawberry tastes a lot more natural than a lot of the strawberry flavors I've had before. Like, it almost tastes like an underripe strawberry. Yeah. Yeah. I do agree with that. Which, again, isn't terrible. Yeah, I'm, I'm probably going to go Kona here, too. <laughs> huh. That's 
tough for me. I did enjoy it quite a bit. You're right. It was a little bit more of a natural strawberry flavor. Sometimes I feel like that, that strawberry is a little kind of difficult like that. Sometimes the more natural underripe strawberry is a little bit of a funky taste. Sometimes it works because it feels real. And then on the other end of that, the like Jolly Rancher strawberry or whatever you might call it, like the very candy version of this can be like a fun surprise or it can be kind of gross. Uh, all that considered, I think I'm gonna go Kona on this one. Yeah. I think it gets the job done. Next is Starfruit Lime. Starfruit Lime is a citrus forward and juicy hard seltzer that will transport your senses and bring the islands right to you. I'm not really sure what to expect from a starfruit perspective. I don't really know that I. Starfruit are trash. Know the starfruit flavor. Mm. Not good. I, yeah, I don't think I've ever had one, honestly. Hmm. I think the saving grace for this pack, these flavors are very subtle. They're not really hitting for me, but they don't really linger that much. And I'm not getting like a bad beery aftertaste, Mm -hmm. which is what I was worried about coming from a place that brews beer. Mm -hmm. I do think as opposed to other limes, this is a lot less sour. Oh, sure. Yeah. I think it's kind of like, a very mellow lime. It, I mean, it almost tastes like water with a lime. I couldn't make heads or tails of if there's a starfruit in that. I have no idea. Yeah. Have you guys had starfruit? I don't think I have. Yeah. Maybe. To me, starfruit is like a kind of citrusy flavor, like borderline citrusy. Flavor. Well, this certainly mm. has a borderline citrusy flavor. But it's more like less strong than any other. It's a interesting. But this is also less strong than it's any other. The, it's a Lacroix fruit. I yeah, feel like well, that's a great way to describe something, <laughs> LaCroix something. Boy, that all considered, and now having a better idea of what Starfruit is, I don't think I was wowed by this. It was still pretty decent, but I don't know if I can see myself going any higher than a Kona, and that's exactly where I'm going to put it. Yeah, I'm thinking Kona as well. Yeah. Well, at least we're in line for that one. Last one up on the docket here is Tropical Punch. Punch your ticket to a Hawaiian vacation with tastes of pineapple, orange, cherry, grape, and tangerine in this refreshing, fizzy, hard seltzer. All I'm hoping is that this is a little stronger than the other flavors. I think I got done dirty on this one. I really wanted this to taste like Hawaiian punch. I did too. And I think it's stronger, stronger in maybe the wrong way. Yeah. This one actually is a little gross to me. Yeah, there's a kind of a citrus medley with an off aftertaste that I think is what's like leaning towards tropical punch. Mm -hmm. And there's none of that like juiciness to it that I I would say a tropical punch normally has, which means I'm going to go as low as a Kona here. This is the first one I think of the four that I actually got like kind of a gross, not fruit flavored aftertaste. This was the first one that I at least noticed. I think that's a fruit punch attempt. I don't Mm -hmm. think it's like a booziness. Yeah. Well, maybe boozy isn't the right word for it. It's just like that sweetener taste that you get in in a lot of these, like the mm-hmm. Bud Light seltzers and stuff. Like I could just tell that this is not someone making a fruit punch. This is in approximation of that trying to be alcoholic. And for that reason, and that reason alone, I think I got to give it a Kona. So I guess overall, this is a, I don't know. This is a pack that we've rated packs higher. We've rated packs lower. Some of these were as high as Kona, but some of them were as low as Kona. That probably averages out somewhere in the Kona range. 
or like maybe a Kona 0.5. Yeah, that's yeah. I guess if you do the math, it's probably Kona 0.5 or like 0.67 repeating, you know, because I think it was just a little higher. But yeah, I don't know. That was okay. But let's give it a final verdict. Kona is the home of the Ironman World Championship Triathlon, which is held each year in October in Kalua, Kona. How many of these three Ironman events would you complete to get your hands on these seltzers, Griffin? So triathlon is you got the run, you got the bike, you got the swim. Hmm. How far would you go? I mean, I think I'd do a leg. These are pretty refreshing after a leg of it. I don't know that I'd do the whole Ironman to get my hands on these, but... You know, after a long swim, I could definitely see drinking these. Mm-hmm. I could crack one of these open after a good round on the bike and have, have some fun. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't think I'm going wild for him, but they definitely are in the Kona territory. So we got a quick bonus round before we hop into our talks about actual TTRPG stuff. This is compliments of Chris. He gifted Griff and myself these for Christmas. These are Zing Zang cocktails in a can so we have the bloody mary and margarita varietal website copy full strength and ready to enjoy the award-winning flavors you love perfectly mixed with premium spirits in a can or bottle i think zing zang is a pretty popular mixer they do like sweet and sour mix and or i i guess that's just sour mix i don't know bloody mary mix all that type of stuff so these are nine percent abv so they're a little chunkier than the konas we're supposed to shake well before opening so be wary of that let's kick this off with classic margarita quick scale here because we have Bloody Mary, everyone knows if you say Bloody Mary three times into a mirror, she will arrive. So how many times would you say Bloody Mary into a mirror for both of these, I think, would be appropriate. Okay. You know, I'm going to try the roll method here. Oh, good thinking. This is one your dad taught you. Yeah. Passed down from generation to generation. It's a Norman family tradition to roll the cans. Mm-hmm. For a more even distribution or you don't get the fizz. Well, it doesn't give you the fizz, but it still mixes it. All right. Whenever you're ready, man. We got a little copy too. Yeah, so Classic Margarita is premium silver tequila from Mexico combines with our original Zing Zang Classic Margarita canned cocktail, natural blend of blue agave nectar and three citrus fruit juices to create the Zing Zang Margarita canned cocktail, a delicious and thirst quenching citrus forward drink with just the right amount of sweetness and honey-like finish. Okay. That was was pretty good, man. I kind of like that. It tastes fine. I'm not really getting like any sour from a margarita. Not really, but it's kind of got like the limey margarita taste to it, it. Yeah, it tastes like a really lime. So it almost like tastes like a thicker Sprite. A thicker non-carbonated yeah, Sprite? Yeah, thicker non-carbonated Sprite is what I'm getting from this. Maybe it's weird, but I kind of like that. I'm looking myself dead in the eyes in the mirror and saying Bloody Mary three times. Yeah, I'll probably go two. Yeah. Full disclosure, I've already had two Bloody Marys today, so... Oh, we'll, wow. see, we'll see how this stacks up. All right. So you're coming in biased here. Yep. Bloody Mary. For almost 25 years, consumers and bartenders has trusted the Zing Zang Bloody Mary mix crafted from a proprietary blend of seven real vegetable juices and bold seasonings. The Zing Zang Bloody Mary can cocktail combines the same Zing Zang Bloody Mary mix with high quality gluten free American vodka six times distilled to create a robust and spicy bartender quality cocktail available in convenient 12 ounce cans or a 1.75 liter ready to serve bottle. Wait, you can get a two liter of this? One point seven five. Or the or the just the mixer. 
I believe you can get it. Of this. <laughs> I saw that on the website. Maybe we'll do a challenge episode where we each got to finish one of those. They call that the Zing Zang Zoom. Mm. Ooh, that's a Bloody Mary in a can right there. You know, the only thing that's missing is a little bit of spice, but I know you probably don't want to just put that out there. And I know they have a spicy Bloody Mary varietal that I saw on their website. I think they nailed it, man. That's pretty good. Yeah, I think that's a Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary. Hell me. yeah. I'm staring right in the mirror and saying it three times. We're right. having a blast. Yeah. I like that. So we got to divide these up. I don't think it's going to be good for the palate with all the conas, but. I would say it would pair <laughs> poorly. Yes. <laughs> well, you liked the margaritas. Yeah, so that's I'd fine. Say, I'll take that. I'd say we'd split these that way. Mm -hmm. And then I could really care less which of these two I get, honestly. I think we separate the tropical punch and the starfruit lime because those are both, I think, on the lower end. Okay. So I'll, I'll jump on the grenade, the one that we gave a, a Kona across the board to for tropical punch. And then do you care? Absolutely not. Take strawberry. <laughs> All right, cool. Passion fruit, orange guava for me. So time to get into the meat of this episode. We put up our poll for the patrons earlier this week, and we actually had a tie. We had a tie between Creature Feature and the God Complex segment. So instead of just focusing on one, what we decided to do was look at a god that has some thematic creatures. And I would talk about the god. Griffin would talk about the creatures. We're going to be talking about Urgothoa today. We're not going to go into crazy deep detail because this is a god that has a lot of lore written about her. So... We're going to be hitting some fun stuff, most of the high level stuff, but there is a lot more to discover. There are entries in Gods and Magic, Inner Sea Gods, Back Matter of Books all over the place. So we're not going to get to everything today, folks. Griffin, what creatures do you want to talk about today? So I'm going to talk about two because one of them I think is very tied to Urgothoa, but sadly doesn't really have a 2E stat block, so I can kind of talk about the 1E, which is the Sarcovault, and then I'm going to talk about the Devourer, because one of Urgothoa's divine heralds is a Devourer. Hell yeah. Well, how do you want to go about it? Do you want me to do gods? Do you want to split up your two creatures with Urgothoa in the middle? However you want to do it, man. I think it probably makes sense for you to talk about Urgothoa before I talk about like what these things are, because they're kind of tied. Sure thing. Well, then let's get to it. So I'm going to start with the opening paragraph from Lost Omens, Gods and Magic about Urgothoa, because that's really going to set the tone. And then we're going to talk about all of the stuff that follows it. So the chosen of Urgothoa do not dread the flaws of mortal flesh, such as aging, disease or even death. For so long as they indulge in excess above all else, their goddess offers eternal freedom from such fickle constraints. Urgothoa herself was once a mortal woman who challenged and rejected the tenets of deities, whose followers expected mindless conformity, temperance, and restraint. Why would the gods craft Galarian into a near-endless buffet, abundant with the pleasures of the body and mind, if the living weren't destined to feed from it? Urgothoa so loved satiating her life's appetites that in death she spat in the face of Phrasma's judgment, murdered the psychopomp assigned to aid her transition into the afterlife, and tore herself from the boneyard with a feat of will that not only returned her to the material plane, but also transformed her into the first divine undead creature. So, if you're thinking of Urgothoa, many of you probably know what she looks like, because honestly, I feel like it's 
a pretty iconic look in Pathfinder that I don't think has changed too much across the span of the publications that she's appeared in. She is an attractive woman with pale skin and black hair from the waist up, but from the waist down and from the elbow down is a skeleton with exposed entrails and decaying flesh clinging to those bones in little bits and chunks. She's usually holding her favored weapon, which is a scythe, and then occasionally is wearing like cloth clothes, but they're like religious garb usually that's like stained with blood and bile and grossness if she's wearing anything at all which usually she's not have you seen the new depiction of her that's similar except she's like fully tatted no and we're gonna cancel this rest of the episode <laughs> I gotta look that up. <laughs> no i'm gonna look that up later but that sounds awesome it, it reminds me of like the mummified woman that they dug up that had like those ritual tattoos on her uh-huh well I will look this up later. I just plugged her into my image search to remind myself. But areas of concern include gluttony, disease, undeath. Her edicts are become undead upon death, create or protect the undead, sate your appetites, anathema, the stuff you don't want to do, deny your appetites, destroy undead, or sacrifice your life. Her domains in 2E include indulgence, might, magic, and undeath, and alternative domains are decay and swarm. Her symbol is a skull-decorated fly, her sacred animal, of course, being the fly, but there are other favored animals in her worship, which include carrion eaters like vultures and other insects that may eat rotting flesh, kind of like a, a maggot or spread disease easily like a fly or a mosquito or something like that. Colors red and green could be Christmas influenced, but probably is like blood and bile. Her home. Where does she live? She lives in Blood Rot, which is in Abaddon. It is a necropolis located on the shore of the Sea of Lamentation. It is inhabited by her undead followers, which are on this plane. And the story behind this is really interesting and a little vague. She made a deal with Karen, the Horseman of Death, and daemons basically leave her alone in this little subdomain of Abaddon. She also resides there with Xiphus, the god of accidental death, who also made a deal with the horsemen to reside there. Now, a lot of details of this deal are unknown, and that territory within Abaddon is actually surrounded completely by daemons silently staring inward towards the gods and their followers in there. And that kind of would indicate to me that something is weird with this deal or there's more than meets the eye, but we don't know yet. If you worship Ergothoa, you would be someone who pushes the boundaries of excess. You reject moderation and self-restraint at any cost. Followers gore on meals, experiment recklessly, Probably, you know, that's thematic with Andesin in book two of Curse, with the experiments, and feed a never-ending hunger. Most pursue the aim of becoming undead, which is seen to them as the ultimate transcendence beyond the body's mortal limitations. 
some common practices of worshipers of Ergothoa are savoring poisons kind of to build up a tolerance and immunity to get the taste of that poison without actually getting hurt by it. Eating the flesh of other intelligent beings, since that is generally taboo in organized society, a quote unquote pleasure that's denied to most people that they would be indulging in, and then willfully contracting diseases. Now that's kind of an interesting one to me because the reason for that one, you know, Ergothoa is all about diseases, but what they're specifically pursuing there is to experience these like fever dreams where Ergothoa would provide them guidance and visions. Pretty wild. Think of all the crazy dreams you've had while you had a fever. <laughs> Could be Ergothoa whispering in your ear. Predictably because of this general grossness and their awful nature, the Church of Ergothoa is largely hidden away from society, usually taking the form of cults, though the exception is she is openly worshipped in Geb, undead nation, makes sense. Her churches are typically matriarchal, with a female cleric leading a congregation, which typically comprises of undead, necromancers, and people looking to become undead. Primary holiday of Ergothoan worship is called the Reaping. This is a day when worshipers leave their secret hideouts and murder parishioners of other deities that are allied against Ergothoa in spectacular, gruesome ways. And like they try to get as much blood and gore on them as possible as they're committing these hideous acts. Typical victims include the followers of Erastal, Serenray, Phrasma, Gozra. Abadar, Calistria, the prophecies of Calistrate, Irori, Gorum, Lamashtu. She's got a lot of enemies. <laughs> Not a lot of friends. No. So I'm just going to hit a couple fun facts here, and then we're going to move on to talk about some of her creatures. So folks say that her first footsteps on Galarian after she came back after killing that psychopomp usher and becoming undead, those footsteps are linked to the emergence of disease in the material plane and the imprint of those footsteps is said to be cursed with such diseases that mortals who contract them can develop no immunity very gross who do not want to find them those who are cursed by ergothoa can remove that curse only by consuming raw flesh from a sapient creature and then finally the one thing that i wanted to shout out here is her sacred text it is called Serving Your Hunger, which I believe shows up in Carrion Crown. It was written originally by Dason, her first anti-paladin. He was rewarded for this act by receiving a wondrous item called the Defiled Discs of Ergothoa. I believe they're referenced in a Pathfinder Society scenario. They are a relic consisting of four bronze discs tied together by the entrails of some unknown creature and they depict vile rituals that are holy to Ergothoa. On a starless, moonless night, the discs align into one single plate, and if you eat, I don't know what this means, but read between the lines, quote unquote, a sinister meal off of them, you're rewarded with Ergothoa's favor. So, like I said, there's a lot more out there about Ergothoa. I probably only hit some of the most basic high-level stuff, but she is fascinating and makes a really, really good bad guy for your campaigns, which is probably why her followers show up in so many. But Griff, how about we talk about some of the creatures that are closely affiliated with said awful god? Sure. 
We'll start with the Sarka Vault because it is only a one-e creature, but it is the low-level servitor of Urgothoa, and it is a... The creature is tiny stats-wise, but it's like a house cat-sized fly that has a vulture's neck growing out of its body capped with a fleshless vulture skull. And these creatures are disgusting carrion-eating creatures that pick over the filth and remnants of devoured souls in her planar realm. They have little personal identity and barely remember events more than a few hours old. While they're intelligent enough to converse and recognize their own kind and other daemons, they tend to think of other creatures as either threats or food. They sometimes work together to kill larger prey, but are usually content to eat scraps left behind by more powerful outsiders. Notably, the skull can detach, which leaves its bald neck ending in a stump of tattered flesh. It savors the opportunity to drink blood, but can't swallow it, so its skull is normally painted with the life fluid of its victims. And in their eagerness to shred bodies, especially living flesh, the scavengers often get small treasures like amulets, rings, and other equipment worn close to the body trapped in their skulls. The items rattle around in their heads for a few days before they vomit them up, coated in the vile remains of their last several meals. They use their skulls similarly to how psychopomps wear masks, and it's theorized that a sarcovault is kind of a perversion of a nosoy psychopomp. So they're <laughs> designed in the way that they look to kind of mirror a nosoy, but in a disgusting scavenger bird way and obviously having the body of a fly makes them much like Ergothoa's holy animal. In Wani, they're tiny. They're CR4. They have uh, 19 AC and 34 hit points. They have ferocity, weirdly enough, and they have DR5, good or silver. They're immune to disease and resist acid 10, cold 10, and have spell resistance 15, which is decently high for something this low CR. Yeah. Um, They have uh, a bite attack, and their attacks do 1d6 of bleed after they attack. They can do blood drain with their heads, which does 1d2 constitution damage. They can detach their head, which if they're attacked by something that would behead them, it doesn't kill them. And it can grapple an opponent and detach its head and use its body to continue attacking with spell-like abilities. They share a common pool of hit points, but when it's detached this way, it's treated as a separate creature and can fly at the creature's normal speed. The head can initiate attacks on its own, so again, this only happens when it's grappled and draining blood. And if it's like knocked off, it flies back to the body on its next turn. They give filth fever as the disease with their bite. They have a vomit swarm ability, but it summons a cloud of flies instead of spiders. And their spell-like abilities are constant death watch, at will, purify food and drink, three times a day, death knell, lesser animate dead, and vomit swarm. And then once per day, acid arrow, contagion, and stinking cloud. So yeah, they're nasty little buggers. Yeah, I think they... Ah, man, it's been a minute since we've played some 1E. I feel like they punch a little bit above their weight class. They seem like they'd be kind of not fun to play against. Yeah, they uh, seem a little nasty. And then the Devourer is actually in 2E. 
So a devourer is when fiends and powerful evil spellcasters are lost beyond the farthest reaches of the multiverse. They sometimes return as horrific undead called devourers that consume the souls of the living to fuel their arcane machinations. Their bodies are ruined and rebuilt, hollow and twisted, even as their minds undergo a spiritual transformation. They gain the ability to bind other souls to their own and drain their essence for magical power, yet can never be sated in the pursuit of it. Seething masses of distorted ghostly shapes surge within their hollow rib cages, manifestations of their most recently consumed souls. So a devourer again is a divine, like one of them is one of Urgothoa's divine servitors, although it's much more powerful than the base creature. One interesting thing about devourers is if a outsider is particularly powerful, they can come back as a devourer with their own alignment and some of their abilities from their prior life. So you can actually have a devourer that is not neutral evil. You can have like a chaotic neutral devourer if oh, the, if the um, outsider was chaotic neutral. So devourers are uncommon, large undead creatures. They have a plus 22 perception and they're skilled in arcana deception, intimidate, occultism, and stealth. They have 31 AC, and their saves are decently high, a fortitude at a plus 20, reflex at a plus 18, and will at a plus 24, and they get a plus one status save to all saves versus magic. They have 175 hit points, they're immune to death effects, disease, paralyzed, poison, and unconsciousness, and they have a special ability called spell deflection. So if a spellcaster casts a spell that normally wouldn't affect a devourer, such as a mental spell, banishment, bind soul, divine decree, divine wrath, possession, spirit blast, or spirit song, they can attempt to counteract to free the soul that the devourer has trapped within it. And if the counteract succeeds, the trapped soul is released, though the creature remains dead. This is important because the devourer can only use its spells if it has spell charges from the creature. So normally a creature imparts five charges per level of the creature that the devourer has consumed as a spell. And then the devourer can use these spells as soul spells to cast them as occult innate spells, but it needs to expend a number of soul charges equal to the spell's level to cast them. And it can heighten any spell to a maximum of six level by expending more charges. Typically, the devourer only has a soul trapped with 10 soul charges. So the spells that it gets are innate spells with a DC 31. At 6th level, it has Feeble Mind and True Seeing. At 4th, it has Confusion and Suggestion. At 3rd, it has Bind Undead and Paralyze. At 2nd, it has Death Knell. And at 1st, it has Harm. And it also has the Create Undead Ritual. For two actions, it has the Devour Soul ability, which is that the Devourer touches a creature within reach, dealing 8d6 negative damage with a DC 31 basic fortitude save. If the creature is slain by the attack, its soul becomes trapped within the Devourer. While its soul is trapped, a creature can't be resurrected except by powerful magic such as a wish spell. Destroying the Devourer or successfully counteracting Devourer Soul releases the soul. They can only hold one soul at a time, and like I said, the soul has five charges per level of the originating creature. If the soul is freed and the creature returns to life, the creature is drained one for every soul charges expended. If reduced to zero soul charges, the soul is consumed and can be restored to life only by wish. It also has drain life, 
which is a part of its claw strike. When the Devourer damages a living creature with its strike, the Devourer gains 10 temporary hit points, and the creature must succeed at a DC 24 fortitude save or become drained one. Further damage dealt by the Devourer increases the condition value by one on a failed save to a maximum of drained four. So it can just keep draining you with its melee attacks. Its melee is a claw at a plus 24, which does 2d10 damage plus 13 slashing plus drain life. Interestingly enough, no matter what is turned into a devourer, it always appears large. So its body is always reformed as a large creature and it's like hollowed out. So it's rarely ever more than 200 pounds. And they're hated by Phrasmans and Psychopomps because they devour souls. So they keep souls from going to the Boneyard. Yeah, the official art of this thing kind of looks like a mummy almost. You know, not with the wrappings, but like a mummified body that has its chest cavity hollowed out. There's a big like turquoise oval where you can see these ghostly skull like I am assuming representing like souls that it sucked up. And then he's just exhaling the fattest vape cloud. Yeah. Vame nation on this guy. Absolutely. So I wouldn't say they're like particularly powerful for their level. Uh, they seem, you know, okay. Mm-hmm. That devour soul ability, though, is strong if you have a party that's weakened because it basically regains all of its spells. If you use it on a level eight creature, you're getting 40 soul charges back. Yeah. So it's fairly strong there. And for Ergothoa specifically, the uh, divine servitor is Barastangus, which Great. is a, yeah, a devourer, powerful, extremely emaciated, looking undead. Her white skin is so thin and tight that the creature's bones and connective tissue can be seen through it. She can occasionally be called on by powerful magic to perform tasks, but requires the soul of an important re- creature in return. So she's one of Ergothoa's many servants. Ooh. All right, man. Well, anything remaining on these creatures that you wanted to call out? They both seemed really interesting. Yeah, I don't think so. It's cool. I had to bring up the Sarkoval because it's like the opposite of a Nosoy, mm-hmm. which is interesting. I didn't know that existed till I was looking it up today. Yeah. And a very cool reflection of a very common Phrasma creature, which they're diametrically at odds. But I guess to that note, we're going to move towards some listener questions. Let's get some questions going. Haley, what do we got? Do we have any? We have a few. Hell yeah. The first one's from Newt. What was the numerical equivalent of the final Kona score? (laughs) (laughs) I actually have mine. He did call you lazy, Steve, so. Well, okay. I don't think the rating score was necessarily lazy because it was five different variations on Kona. But then when Griff did just a Kona, I was like, I'm doubling down on this game. This is so funny. (laughs) It was intended to be like a laugh. uh, It's five different variations of Kona, but there's an asteroid in there. So we could have said, I'm going to give this one the Kona asteroid or the Kona bike or whatever. And when he said Kona, I was like, well, that's what we're doing. That's too good. I have no fucking clue what I rated these. I rated the first three a three and the last one a two. So my total is a 2.75. I think mine's slightly lower than that. I might have gone 3322. It was a just south of mediocre pack. I don't think any of them were gross. I just don't think anything there to write home. Nothing wild me yeah. for sure. And that fruit punch was sad. Yeah. Jason asked a question. 
which Ergothoan tropes would you throw at the cast of characters from the Mummy franchise, you know, Brendan Fraser, for a fun cinematic experience? I think the mummy shows up in the city that they're like adventuring from mm-hmm. and like starts stealing people's body parts. I think it would be fun to have the mummy like invite the ones that he knows are after him to like a feast. Oh, sure. Like invite them to a feast and have like everything kind of like glamoured as like, you know, good food. And then it's like, you know, the classic Ergotho and like you're eating people. I would cast Patricia Velasquez. Anak Sunamar as Ergothoa, because I think she could totally pull it off and actually have Ergothoa show up in there. But make sure that you use the same CGI that you used to turn the rock into the Scorpion King. <laughs> so that's how I would do it. Okay. Next question. Newt asked, if Ergothoa blessed you with a unique form of undeath, what would its unique trait be? What would be the lore that gets others revived as you, like your type of undead. Ooh, I'm gonna go vampire. That's not unique. You said unique. Uh, Sparkly unique? vampire. A unique form of undeath. And your unique trait would be? Sparkling. <laughs> okay, and how would people be revived as your type of undead? Be brooding in life. <laughs> Do they need to coat themselves with a glitter bomb? Yeah, okay, that. Okay. I'll, I'll think harder on this. Go, Griff. <laughs> Mine would be the meat man. And he gets... <laughs> the creature gets revived as like a special type of skeleton that seeks out fleshy creatures and adds their flesh to its form and can like graft their flesh to its bones in order to like become a meat man. And how do people revive as your type of undead? You have to have been particularly full of meat in life. Ah, I don't know if so it'd be die like, hungry or like is, oh, full no, of no. meat. You have to die in a lifting accident. <laughs> <laughs> I think this would You're be just like constantly trying to build your muscles. This, this would be like the like how Balumdar worshippers come back if they <laughs> you know if they come back as undead, or like how like your average barbarian would like come back as undead. It doesn't require you to be like a special caster or anything. You just have to like have had mass as sure, a yeah. as a like enough mass to reach a tipping point where your <laughs> your skeleton would want to acquire mass as a uh, dead creature i think mine would be similar to like the fiddling bones in tui i'm um, sort of like the diddling a- bones come on <laughs> No, (laughs) it would be similar to the fiddling bones in Tui where there's like a musical component to it, but it is your musical tastes haven't matured since you were a teenager. (laughs) And so for people who have been listening to the same type of music for uh, several decades, you just haunt like a ghost different places and you could hear like uh, my chemical romance songs and stuff. (laughs) The, The nostalgia spirit. Yeah, that's it. Nostalgia music spirit. Oh, man. Okay. Eric has asked, if exactly half your body was turned into an undead creature, what creature, and how would you split it? Oh. Uh, huh. I think jester style splitting. Or it's just oh, like, like the, the, yeah. You're like, there's no word for this. You're like quadrant out, where yeah. it's like quadrant one and quadrant four, <laughs> like opposite ends. Yeah. Diagonal. That's... <laughs> That's a unique answer, Haley. That's yeah, yeah, unique. 
I think I would go my limbs and legs. Okay. Like my arms and legs. I think that's like... What would you be? Maybe close to half. And I would... Uh, I think I'd be like one of those ectoplasmic undead that like can be solid, but can also be like mm. ethereal. You want to be gooey? Yeah, I mean, I'd be gooey because I'm already sweaty. <laughs> so like, there's not, not, much a, a not much changes. <laughs> but like, you know, you could do stuff with ethereal arms and legs. That's true. I think the call for me is to be picking what side of my body to be undead, I think I'm going to go the inside. <laughs> oh. So that eventually when my outside dies, it'll just rot off and then it'll just be like a skeleton or a zombie or something, like a flesh zombie, you know, a skinless zombie. That's pretty good. Kind of like a puppet. Yeah, kind of Colossal Titan style from Attack on Titan, I think, would be pretty fucking gross. What was the second half of the question? <laughs> what, oh, no, it was what half of your body and what oh, creature? Okay, yeah, the inside half. <laughs> uh, okay. has asked another question. Griff, if all of the seasons, Golden Shackles decided to take a turn into being Urgothoa worshippers, how much do you think that would change the campaign and what sort of homebrew arcs would you add? I mean, I think it'd change it pretty substantially because no one in the party is evil. So that'd be a very different style of pirate. I don't know that I'd have to add too much homebrew because, like, the campaign allows for evil to happen. I just think there'd be, like, a lot more raising dead and stuff than there is. It'd, it'd be interesting, like any adventure, there are some interactions with undead creatures, so it'd be interesting to see how that goes with an all Ergothoan party. This seems like something, like an, an, an adventure... That something like that could actually be achievable, though. Yeah. Which is kind of interesting. Like, if the hook of this show was that we were all Urgothoan worshippers who became pirates, or we were all evil whatevers doing this, it's probably possible. It's probably like, you know, if you're playing Mass Effect and do all the evil choices in the dialogue, like, you, you can still roll credits on the game. Yeah. Like, you'll come out of the, at the other end like a shitty person, and a lot of your NPCs will be dead, but, like, it's definitely possible, and it's a valid way to play the game. Yeah, I think there'd be, like, less friendships made. Sure. <laughs> Compared to where a you guys are right less, now. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe a bit earlier uh, poisoning or diseasing of the food. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, it not too materially different. Yeah, that's an interesting answer, and that's an interesting question. Yeah. Got another interesting question here. Um, Pirate Daddy's Next Door asked, what are your top two reasons for thinking Urgotho is disgusting? I'd say my top reason is the bottom. Damn it, you beat me. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> I don't mind the hedonism excess side of her profile, but I don't like that it always seems to have to skew to like cannibalism and everything. Mm -hmm. Like if it was just these guys are feasting all the time, like that's not too different than like worshipping Thor. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like you're feasting and meeting all the time, but once it becomes like, okay, you have to like eat sapient beings and you have to try and disease yourself and disease others then it gets icky i'll take it a step further in that if it were just like oh i'm gonna carve off a man's bicep and like turn that into a steak like that's reprehensible but at least that approximates an actual meal but a lot of their like gorging cannibalism is like eat the guts of this guy and it's just like oh that's 
I know eating a human is bad, but that's like a step further than that. You know, like that's like you're not trying to approximate it even tasting good. That's just like it's actually fucking disgusting. I mean, it actually you, I, I feel like I'm talking myself into a hole here, but you know what I'm saying, right? Like, right. I mean, there's like a you whole can make you can make legit cuts like, of meat off a it, human. You got to eat it raw. And yeah. You got to eat it like you got to eat their intestines instead of the good bits. Yeah, yeah why are they like, like punishing their own followers? You wouldn't for do that with an animal. That's what right? it sounds like. Right? I think That's it, what it feels like. The, for the sure. point of it is to like approximate the undead experience, but you don't have like the undead yearning for flesh as a living creature. So it's just like punishing. Mm -hmm. And there's also the angle of like, well, a normal person wouldn't eat a human, but they also don't know what a kidney tastes like and a heart and a lung and stuff. And so it's just like, it's kind of experiencing everything that you could possibly experience, but there's some things that no no person should ever experience. So, you know. Yeah, a lot of gross shit there. Got anything else, Haley? Um, I don't see any other questions. I see someone typing, but I don't see actually any questions. All right. Well, in the meantime, I have one from the archives here, and this is from a listener who's actually watching along with us right now. Of course, it's Newt. And I think this, <laughs> this might be a fun one to bring Haley in for. So if Calypso ends up becoming the pirate queen, how will that impact the Shackles geopolitical situation? What sorts of incursions might the Farajman church make? Will Gebian nobles seek her bony hand in marriage? Would countries even want to do business with the Shackles at all? I guess this is a larger geopolitical discussion on what happens if a skeleton becomes queen of the shackles. What do you all think? I think it all depends on her philosophy as ruler. It's like it's one thing to be ruled by an undead creature. It's another if that ruler is like, I want to spread undeath and I want to make everyone undead that, that I'm ruling over. And, you know, like... They're already ruled over Kurdak Bonefist, who has a skeleton arm. Like, I don't, I don't, transition. I don't know that it's like that much of a leap to have mm -hmm. a full skeleton uh, in that place. There's already something weird about the ruler of the shackles, so weird and potentially undead or magically driven. So it really depends on how like Calypso would act in that position, because like it's also a very real possibility that as a leader who wants to make deals with other nations and stuff, you hide your undead nature, which is not that difficult to do. You know, that might be something that's like a rumor in the shackles, but not everybody actually knows. Yeah, to be honest, it's not like Calypso. I mean, Calypso's obviously a skeleton, but like she's not walking around naked, right? Like she's mm -hmm. got full clothes and full like wig and everything. Like it probably takes a minute for people to actually realize she's a skeleton like you have to be talking to her yeah and she doesn't like push any whack agendas besides i just want my shit back like and yeah. I, I can't imagine that you know we got six books ahead of us things can change but like i don't see her character being like everyone needs to be a skeleton and we're gonna turn the shackles into a big old graveyard like yeah i think she barely feels like a skeleton still oh sure and yeah so, she's uh, more like someone with amnesia yeah than at anything point, she's like i want my shit back and uh I want to be the greatest pirate ever because that's what I was trying to do anyways. <laughs> so like I had a little blip in my journey and I'm continuing it. Little blip in my journey. I was killed, but <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think it was an interesting question and I stand by our answer. I think it's the right one. I am watching the chat though and I see at least one more question in here. Yeah, I see a question from Ellie. 
that yeah. says, what would be your favorite recipe in serving your hunker? Uh, well, I bet lizard folk tastes a lot like gator, which probably tastes a lot like chicken, as far as I know. So, uh... Yeah, and I think the same argument could be made for like a Tengu or the bottom half of Atlas or, you know, something like that. A Tengu would probably be yummy. Right. Sautéed gripply legs. Ew. (laughs) I don't want frog legs. We're already softly exploring this on (laughs) Skull (laughs) Chat. It's a soft run of the all Ergothoan campaign. I do think like a nice barbecued Tengu would be good though. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Oh, I like Eric's comment in the chat. Big drumstick. That's it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Massive drumstick. <laughs> That's the turkey leg at the Ren Fair, but you have to be like a, like a cave troll to eat it at that size. I bet like you could walking get it. around with the, with the giant Tengu drumstick. I bet you could get a good brisket off of Minotaur, right? Oh, sure. <gasps> Min- Minotaurs are coming in Howl of the Wild, so mm-hmm. they're probably in there. Yeah. You know, it'd be a difficult meal to get because they're pretty formidable, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel pretty accomplished eating yeah. a minotaur biscuit at that point. Yeah, I think oh, a minotaur is always portrayed as like a foe you need to defeat. So even though he's intelligent, it would kind of feel like a yeah, I kick this guy's ass and now I'm eating him, and he tastes good too. Like I wouldn't be surprised if later in the Delicious in Dungeon series they debate on the merits of eating a minotaur. I would not be shocked. Huh. Yeah, you know. Now that you bring it back, this episode really has come full circle. Yeah. Where that is where we started out. And we've been talking about exactly that. I do like Corey's point here. Make sure your tengu doesn't skip leg day. And yep. we should have concerns if Fish Guts and Skull and Shackles does start asking Kaya how her leg presses have been doing. Yeah. How she's oh, been working yeah. out. That's, that's scary situation. <laughs> Lakata, uh, like a like a fish person, you probably get a good fillet off of that. Oh, oh you probably do a whole Poseidon's yeah. bounty off of that. Oh, Poseidon's bounty. Let's get them in there. Let's get some Salhagin, <laughs> uh, Salhagin fin soup. Now we're fucking talking, baby. I see Emily in the chat. I'm on high alert. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I think that's it well, for us. I guess if that's it, we're going to do a little bit of wrap up and housekeeping. And then if we do have a final jab, we'll hit that before getting out of here. So the next ep of STF and friends, they are currently in the middle of, or I should say we are in the currently in the middle of their run of traveler is Monday, the 15th, which for the folks listening live is going to be in a couple days and if you're listening to this episode on release day that is going to be tonight at i believe it's 7 p.m eastern but make sure you check that on the stf twitch channel i'm playing a nick cage inspired corporate drone and having the time of my life so come check that out The other thing that I wanted to call out is our next episode of Zone of Truth isn't going to be a live one, but it's one that I'm very excited about. I've mentioned it on this program before, but we're going to have the Loremasters team on to discuss their Pathfinder trivia mobile game. If you have questions for them, make sure you drop them in our Discord so we can ask them on the episode. That is a type of content creator in this space that we have not talked to yet, the like video game designer. So I think that's going to be a really interesting conversation. I'm very much so looking forward to that. I don't think I'm missing anything. Any Griff, am I? Anything else out there? All right. Well, if that's the case, do we have any final jabs this time, Haley? Yes, we do. It's a very good jab from Corey. Okay. Steve. 
Oh. I definitely rate you a Kona. Yeah. Said in a derogatory term, a tone, which is what I was hoping to do. Um, well, in a bad way. Kind of sounds like it's a. Uh, like the form of angle in Korean. Uh, <laughs> I feel like it's more an asteroid <laughs> discovered in 2009. But on that note, thank you everybody who's joined us live today. This has been a blast. We are going to head over to the Drunken Discordly channel of our Discord server to have the after party with you all. But until then, you all survived your will save. Griff, is there anything that you want to say to the people at home? Uh, finish your smoke tango legs. We'll see you in two weeks. Later. Thank you.